This morning we're going to be, that's still loud, whatever. Uh, we're going to be in Ezra chapter 8. We're really moving along the book and we're headed toward the end. And I uh, want to kind of reset, reset with you a little bit where we are. We've been looking at Ezra uh, and started out in uh, the first few chapters. And the more I've studied the book, and it's interesting how you begin to study a book in preparation for a teaching series, a preaching series, and then you come back and you do study in the series, you begin to discover some things. I'm convinced, after all my study at this point, that Ezra was the writer not only of Ezra, but probably of Nehemiah. And I would describe what he's doing is kind of like a trilogy. I've seen uh, the Back to the Future trilogy, the three parts in that. I think this is like that. Uh, the first part of the book was what happened before Ezra, and then we're in the midst of where Ezra is. And then the third part of it is in the book of Nehemiah. And no, we're not going to go there when I finish Ezra, but I'm going to let you know that's out there in the future. I'm planning where I think we might go at some point. But we've looked at Ezra, the part before him, and dealt with the, the idea that God was about to do something new in their land. He wanted to bring renewal, revival to their land, and he calls out a group of people to go, and a group goes. And I called them the, the vanguard, the ones who went first, who went to the decimated, destroyed city to reestablish the culture, reestablish their land, to rebuild the temple. We saw through the early parts of the book, they built the altar, then they ordered the parts, and they ordered all the stuff, and then they ran into obstacles and had struggles. And then last week we saw Ezra enter the story, and there's that recurring theme that, use, that the, the writer uses to describe Ezra as a man who had the hand of God on him. And that continues through the rest of Ezra's book, called Ezra, and we'll see that again today. But here's a man who God placed on his heart a call to come back to Jerusalem. Actually, for him, it would have been to go to Jerusalem. He had never been there in his life. And he goes back to reestablish what is, uh, many believe, the biblical culture. If you think about the modern uh, Jewish state, even today, they really do lean hard on their heritage with Ezra because he's, he's the one who came along, reestablished the temple, reestablished the courts, as we saw last week, reestablished the, the way of life that they have and, and began to see God's blessing on them that has continued to this day. And what you see in that situation is the place where God was going to bring the promised Messiah. And we get to that next month in December with Christmas and all those kind of things. But today I want you to kind of look at this situation because we come to the leader of the journey of God's people, Ezra. They've been given this letter. They've been given permission. They've been given the resources to God uh, through the king uh, to go. And in chapter 8, we find out a couple of things. We find out who's going to go. We find out how they're going to get the stuff there. And they're going to find out what to do when they get there as we move along in the story. So this morning, I want you to look at chapter one, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, and the scripture says this, These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Now, I'm going to stop right there, because the next nine verses have got all these really fun names that we all struggle with. And I'm going to tell you, if I read every one of them, you'd go, Who? Who? You don't sound like a bunch of owls out here. Who? Who? Who is that? I want you to understand something about these people. Ezra shares who's going. He lays out the names of the people. Now, why is this important? <coughs> Excuse me. What we find here is that God has been in work in his line, in his land. And with the exception of, you read that list, with the exception of one name maybe, every one of the people mentioned in verses 1 through 14 are related to the people from chapter 1 who went. There's a connection in family. 
Now, what that tells me is a couple of things. There was a group of people who had been captured some, at this point, almost 120 years before, taken into captivity in Persia, and there they are, and now the opportunity had come up for them to return to their promised land, and families divided over who's going back. Some would say, we're going, and the other side of the family would say, uh, we're not going there. Some would say, we have faith, we're going to follow God to the, back to the land of promise, back to Jerusalem, and others said, uh, we're comfortable right here. Now, let me remind you, they're living in captivity, but they were more comfortable living there than going back to the promised land. And so what we find is here in this situation, that with the exception of one name, every person on the list is, is related to those who have traveled when King Cyrus gave them permission. So what we have are descendants of people who refused to go to the promised land the first time the door was opened. Just like Ezra's ancestors, they had not gone back. We discussed that last week a little bit, how Ezra's dad or granddad was probably not one who said, I can go. So he stayed. Ezra was born as a result of that. But it raises a question in my mind, what's changed from the days of Cyrus to the days of Ezra? What has happened in that transition between that? Some of you have seen the story or read the story of Esther in the Bible. Esther was a woman who lived in Persia. Esther was the woman who was living in the king under the king of Ahasuerus. He's also called Xerxes. Uh, it depends on who your language is. And here he was about to have a situation where Haman was negotiating to get rid of God's people, if you remember the story. They wanted to kill everybody. I think the people of Israel finally look up at that point and go, we need to get out of Dodge. We need to not be here anymore. God's opening the door. And these people are finally saying, we're going to make the step. Now, we can't be definitive about the reason, but the essence is this. Families that have been divided now for about 65 to 70 years are going to be reunited as Ezra takes the second expedition back to Jerusalem. They're going to move back to the land. And in this land of promise, they're going to receive an infusion of new people, new wealth. As we see here in a moment, millions of dollars are transported, and they come into the place with faith. So Ezra tells us who's going. Second, Ezra submits a need. Now they get to all the folks together who are going to go and they look around and say that we got everything we need. You ever gone on a trip and what do you do? You look around and say, have we got everything? Have you got your underwear? Have you got your socks? Have you got the toys? You know, that's the little kids. Have you got your stuff? Okay. That's what Ezra is about to do. He's going to look around and say, do we have everything we need? Look at verse 15. He said, I gathered them at the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. And as I reviewed the people and the priest, I found there were none of the sons of Levi. Wait a second. What does that matter? They've got no Levi descendants with them. Does it matter? It does matter. We'll get to that in a moment. Come down to verse 18. And by the, hand, by the good hand of our God on us, he sent for help. He said, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mahali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah and his sons and kinsmen, and Hashabiah and his, with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari uh, with the kinsmen and their sons. And a whole bunch of other folks came with him. So as they've got together at this journey, they're on the western edge of what is today uh, Iraq along the Euphrates River at a place called Ahava. Hava. None of us know where that is. Don't worry about it. It's out there in the desert. Actually, it's where water is, which is a big deal. If you got water in the desert, you can survive. If you don't have water, what happens? 
you die in about three days, okay? So they're at the river getting ready to make the jump across the desert about 900 miles to the promised land. And they look around and say, what are we missing? What are we missing? Now, they're going to be traveling with a what I would call a medium-sized fortune. You're probably thinking, man, what kind of fortune do you think in mind if you t- think this is a medium-sized fortune? They're probably carrying, according to most scholars, a more than mil- more than three to four million dollars in, in gold and items. That's some change, right? What we'd call today about that much money. They've got an issue. They're looking around. They've got We've got some stuff. Now, what we do know is that in this situation, the king has said, hey, we've got some more of y'all's stuff from the temple from back in the day when we took over your land. Take some of that stuff with you. That's important to know because the Levites have an important responsibility in the kingdom of God at the time to what? Take care of the temple and especially the items used in worship in the temple. So Ezra looks around and says, we got a problem. We've got nobody to take care of the stuff that we're going to use when we get back to the temple to worship God. They've got to have special folks to carry those items, to handle those items, to move those items. We need a special team. So he sends out for help, and they find that there's a person, persons available. And they, they, they get them on board, and they come along with them. Their names are Sheshabiah, Hashabiah, and Jeshiah. And you're going, wow, those are some wild names. Well, but that's who they are. And, and they've got a whole bunch of temple servants to boot on top of that. See, Ezra had a lot of supplies. He has permission. He has the things that he needs to go do it, but he's lacking one thing, the right people. He says, we've got to have these people along with us to handle the things of God. If we're going to do the things that honor God, we've got to have God's promise with us. We've got to have his blessing on us, but we've also got to have do and do the things God's way. God had told them in the Old Testament, this is how the items in the temple are handled. So Ezra says, we need these folks with us to do it. And so they were looking for the ones they need. See, just because you have the resources to do it, if you don't do it God's way, we got a problem. And Ezra got that. Third, Ezra then does something interesting that some of you and I would look at and go, huh? He signals for a fast. You know what a fast is, don't you? I'm not going to ask you if you've ever participated in one. That's not important at this moment. But what he does is says this. We need to take some time and fast. Look at the passage, verse 21. Then, Ezra says, I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So with the arrival of the Levites, the expedition is complete. They've got all the people they need. They've got the right people in place. They're ready to go on the journey. And instead of just jumping on the road, what do they do? Ezra says, we need to fast. We need to stop and get before God before we go. Boy, there's some instruction there for us, isn't there? Now, I want you to know, fasting is not a spiritual practice designed to lose weight. It's not the latest Weight Watchers fad. Rather, it's a practice designed to help us set aside what we would normally be doing to come into the presence of God, to spend more time with Him. 
to get in front of him and say, God, here's what we need. And he comes, and they come to God with a twofold request, as you see it in the passage. First of all, they said, we're going to humble ourselves before the Lord. We want to be before you. And we want you to give us blessing on the journey. Some of us are going, why would they do that? Just get in the car and go. It's no big deal. God's always with us, right? Ezra understands the importance of coming before God before, not after. In preparation, not in reaction. He says, I want to come before God. Understand Ezra had perceived, had received much from the king, and he had shared the immense protection he would receive. And so he said, I'm not going to ask for armed escort. We're going to ask God to do this. Now, it would have been very appropriate for Ezra to go to the king and say, hey, you've given us millions of dollars of stuff. Can you give us a crew to help us get there? In fact, just as a side note, when Nehemiah begins to go and he's given similar resources, he does take the protection of the king. So there's nothing wrong with taking the king's protection, but Ezra said, we need God's hand on this. We need God's moving on. He said, I've talked about how good God is. I've talked about how God is wonderful and protecting and caring. So we're going to trust God. Y'all okay with that? Good place to start. He does something that from us as humans, we would think that's reckless. That's dangerous. He says, we're going to trust God alone. Wow. Now you're going, well, what's the big deal? Nobody lives in the desert. No, Nobody but robbers and thieves, pretty much. You cross the desert, you can get robbed quickly. Have you ever read the story of the Good Samaritan? Remember what happened to him on the road down to Jericho? I mean, those things happened all the way through history. They still happen in certain places today. And so what he does, he takes a major step of faith, and he leads his expedition across that area to get there. And what he does in preparation for that, he says, we're going to spread the risk. So you got millions of dollars of stuff, what do you do with it? Put it in one big wagon, and that way they can find it and run off with it quick, right? No, what he does is we're going to spread it around. Look at verse 24. Then I set apart the 12, 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. Drop down to verse 28. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. And the vessels are holy, and the silver and gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem with the chambers. Come down to verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And here's that phrase again. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes along the way. Come back down again to verse 35. Kind of going through it a little quicker this morning, but that's okay. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. And this was a burnt offering to the Lord. So with the conclusion of the fast, day to leave is coming. They said, what do we got to do now? How are we going to get there? They didn't call up the GPS and look at the map. They knew the directions. There were only certain routes you would take and get across that part of the world, and they knew where we were headed, so we're going there. Now, how are we going to get it there? We've got a lot of stuff to take, and we might get robbed along the way. How can we mitigate the risk? How can we spread the risk out? What they did is they said, we're going to take the 12 of the Levites, and we're going to spread a 12th of the resources out into different parts of the caravan so that we will hopefully be able to get there at least with most of what we need. And he says, we're going to walk together, work together, team together. And by doing this, he says, we're not going to lose it all. He made a prudent move. And he says, we're going to do what's reasonable. 
So they made the journey without incident. They get to Jerusalem. What are you going to do now? The God's answered their prayer. He's responded to their fast and their request for God. And he says, I've got it for you. And on the fourth day, they deliver what has been entrusted to them. They do a full accounting of it, not because they didn't trust the people, but they wanted to prove that it was right. And then resources have shown up and that they've done what's appropriate and they worshiped God. Have you noticed these people continually go to God, they see God move, and then what do they do? They respond by worshiping God. What a great pattern we ought to have in our lives. That we go to God, ask Him what to do. Then He moves. Then we can respond by what? Worshiping God and saying, God, thank you. So what do we do with this passage? Three quick thoughts and we'll get home. And it's already one one o'clock on the old time, so you're probably hungry. I know, I'm there almost with you, okay? First of all, what what can we get from this passage? First one is this. When we honor God, blessings flow. When we honor God, blessings are going to flow. We've noted before, Ezra apparently made a commitment to the Lord years before. We don't get the backstory of his. Why did he have a faithfulness to God? Why did he have a relationship with God like he did? Why is he a man who keeps being referred to as a man who the hand of the Lord was on him? We don't get to know the background, but we do know that's who he is. So at some point, he made a commitment. It was probably, uh, I suspect, after the people... Uh, the first group left, and he was born, and he looks around and says, well, I heard they left. Why are we still here? And he says, why don't we follow God? And he says, we made a commitment to the Lord. Out of this growing commitment, here's what happened to Ezra. He experienced God's blessing again and again and again. And I believe that we can expect that when we make a decision to follow the Lord. When we say, God, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to make my life centered on you. I'm not going to be perfect, God. You're going to be working in me, but I'm going to continue to grow more and more like you. Where we stop and we say something to this effect, God, I will faithfully honor you in every area of my life. When we do that, when we honor God, we're going to see his blessings in our life. We're going to see him move in amazing ways. And that's going to cover a lot of different areas. Some of you are thinking, oh, good, I'm going to have millions of dollars in my bank account. You might. You might not. That's not the point. Please don't go there. I think it's going to affect how we use our time. It will affect how we use our talents, how we use our resources, how we relate to people, one another, how our lives are lived, are transformed by how we honor God. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church at Rome about this. He said, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Who is he talking about here, friend? He's talking about those of us who have said to the Lord, yes, I will follow you. Yes, I will let you lead my life. Yes, I surrender my whole life to you. That's his call. And out of that is blessed is the man against whom the Lord won't count the sin. I am convinced that God's desire is this. He wants to bless you and he wants to bless me. But he can't do that when we refuse to live our lives that we honor him because we're not going to be clean vessels, honorable people, through whom he wants to work. These blessings will happen primarily when we choose to honor God in his ways. We say, God, I will lay it all at your feet. That's the step, folks. That's the way we get into it. That's how you get in on what God's up to is by getting in to where he is and letting him work in you. You know, he set us free from bondage of sin. What's our next step? Live in such a way that we honor him. And then day by day, make those adjustments and changes that we need to make letting go of those things that would those sins that Hebrews calls that beset us that take us away from the things of God so we can be closer to him 
day by day by day. Second, uh, there's a call here in this passage to do this, to trust God. You go, then we already talked about it. Yeah, but trusting to do something big, to protect our families. Any of you concerned about your family? Any of you care about your family? I mean, most of us do. Those of us who don't, there's something wrong, right? We kind of think, man, what's weird? The second thing I want you to see from Ezra's story is this protection that God gives when we trust him. Ezra gathered with the people to travel from Ahava to Jerusalem, and they did something odd. You remember what it was? They stopped and what? Declared a fast. And you were thinking, is he going to call us to fast as a church? Not today. But it may be a spiritual discipline that we need to reintegrate into our lives or for some of us to integrate into our spiritual walk. That we take some time that says, okay, today I'm going to take a fast from, from eating for 24 hours. Some of you are looking at me like, you lost your mind. I can't go three hours without eating, you know. Or maybe you need to take a fast from social media for a day and spend the time that you would have normally spent in that talking with the Lord. Or maybe take a fast from media altogether. Turn off the, tech, the, the television for a while. Quit listening to the news for a day to see what God might have for you. We need to learn how to be people who come before God. We get into his presence. And, and more often than not, we, we, we don't do that. What we do instead is we say, okay, here's what I want to do, so here's what I'm going to go do, and this is going to be my result. How's that working out for you? Sometimes it doesn't work out so well, does it? But what if there's a better way? A better way that says this, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to come to God. I'm going to go to Him. You remember the story of Job? I like that story. Uh, It's a great, great reminder of how God works. But early in that book, Satan was looking for someone to tempt, to test, to destroy. And he looked at Job's life. And do you remember what happened in his life? God Job's life had, had something in it that, that I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that you and I have as followers of Jesus as well. He had a hedge <clears throat> of protection around him. You remember that? Satan came to God and said this. This is the words of Satan in the Bible. Isn't that just the weirdest little thing? But anyway, he's quoted here in the Bible. He says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. See, God put a hedge around Job. Why? Because he was special. No. Dear child of God, if you are following the Lord Jesus, if you've given your heart to Christ, you have this hedge of protection around you already. God's working to protect you. But we need to keep trusting him. Does that mean God won't open the door for Satan to attack at times? Read Job. It happened, okay? It was ugly. It was painful. But here's the reality. It doesn't matter the faithfulness of your ancestor. It doesn't matter your faithfulness of your yesterday. The question is, what are you going to do today? Will you be faithful today? Will you let him lead you today? God can remove the protection, but I'll tell you something. He doesn't leave you or forsake you in the midst of it. He took care of Job. One more thought for you, and I'll be done. God-centered worship is always right. This is a recurring theme in the book. We've seen it again and again. As God has moved in their lives, how have they responded? With a party? No. With a relaxation period? No. They said, we're going to worship God. They've come before God. There's two events in this story, in the passage we read today, that are related to worship. We kind of already talked about one of them being that time of fasting. You're going, fasting is worship? Yes. It's a time of getting before God, 
calling out to his name, calling to, to seek his face, to understand who he is. That's a time of very private worship. That's something you do on your own. In fact, the, the scriptures tell us when we fast, we don't go out and make a big deal about it. We don't walk around with a sad face and people will go, what's wrong with you? Oh, I'm fasting for Jesus today. No, we don't do that, okay? We just do it, all right? The other was a very public uh, worship. Do you remember what that was? They got to the end of the moment. They arrived in the temple, and they go to the temple, and what do they do? They worshiped God. Now, you're going, did you read the passage? They like sacrifice bulls and animals and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I did. That's why they do that, because that's how they worshiped back then. Aren't you glad that we don't do that anymore? Can you imagine? We're going to church today to cut a bull in his neck and let the blood run out and we can worship God. Ooh, no, thank you. You all with me? But we can come before God and sing songs of praises to the Lord, right? We can come and hear choirs sing amazing songs. We can come and study God's Word. We can come and pray together. We can come and give our offerings and tithes to the Lord together, right? That's the kind of things that we get to do. And those kind of things, friends, are always... Always, always what? Right. Because that's what God calls us to do, to worship Him. God, Jesus told His followers about worship. He says this, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. God says, I don't want to be part of your life. I want to be the center of your life. I want to be number one in your life. It all begins with a relationship, a relationship with Christ. Maybe you're here today and you've never made that decision to, to trust Christ. That's the starting point. You're going to walk across the desert 900 miles trusting God. You might want to know God to start with, right? If you're going to worship God, you might want to know Him first. Some of you need to make that decision. Some of you need to make a public declaration of your faith in Christ. You say, I'm trusting Christ. I have been trusting Christ. Now I need to make it public and go on with the next steps of my spiritual walk and grow. Some of you say, I need to become part of this fellowship. I've trusted Christ, but I'm not plugged in here officially. We want to give you that opportunity this morning before we close out the service. Father God, we come before you thanking you so much for your, your love and your grace and your mercy and your peace, your leading through the good days and through the bad. And we pray for those, Lord, who need to make some kind of public decision this morning. We want to give them that opportunity, Father, to say I'm trusting Christ or to say I have been trusting Christ. Or to say, I know the Lord, but I need to plug into this church. We want to give you the glory this morning through it all. In Jesus' name.